Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Outkick 360 rolls on. I'm Paul Kuharski in Nashville, Tennessee at 6th and Peabody, home of Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Jonathan Hutton and Chad Withrow with me from Atlanta, where they will do Outkick the Tailgate tomorrow in advance of the SEC Championship game. Gentlemen, good to be with you. Um, we've been talking lately with all of these coaching raises in college football a little bit about the gap between those jobs and the NFL job. I have a, a thought on that I wanted to share with you and get your reaction to. We should start, though. Hutton, you've got the latest college football raise. Oh, well, the latest one being reported by, by multiple outlets now is, is Mario Cristobal and Oregon are nearing and finalizing a big extension that reportedly is going to be uh, with the, the the likes of what we've seen from Mel Tucker, uh, what we've seen recently at LSU um, with Brian Kelly, uh, higher than what James Franklin received at Penn State. And what this means is Cristobal is the next in line, Chad. He's going to get extended, so he doesn't go anywhere this offseason. And that means Ryan Day is going to get paid this offseason. Saban's getting a raise. Kirby Smart's going to get a raise. All of these teams with coaches in, in big-time uh, programs are going to get extensions and big-time raises. And, Chad, if you're a head coach right now in college football in a Power Five and you're not getting a raise or a contract extension, your seat is warm. It's a warning sign flashing in massive uh, neon lights to you that your university isn't backing you because you pose no threat of leaving. Well, the agents just, when they get any inquiry from a school, like Mario Cristobal, I'm sure was contacted by someone, his agent was, do they just forward that on to the AD? And does that just add, you know, uh, uh, commas to what they're going to make at that point? I'm, I'm curious how that, that whole thing works when you get contacted by two places and that immediately equates to a raise from the place you are currently. It, it's, it's out of control. We've talked about it a lot. I mean, it's I don't know how you get things back under control because the uh, the chicken has left the coop at yeah. this point with college coaching contracts or lack thereof. One new open job, Chad. You've been kind of slotting slotting these jobs. Oklahoma, obviously, uh, the the big fish still out there. Bronco Mendenhall, um, it sounds like of his own volition, uh, has stepped away at the University of Virginia after six years. Um, great campus, basketball school, some potential there. And obviously the ACC, not the toughest place to win, but they've never had great football success by any means. Where would you put that job now? Well, I mean, it's, it's obviously behind Oklahoma, but it's, it's ahead of, uh, the other, everything else, uh, power five jobs. Well, I'm sorry. The other, the other FBS jobs that are, that are out there now, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think, is there anyone other than Oklahoma and the FBS that's still available? I don't think so. Miami think pending, just, Miami pending, perhaps. Miami possibly, but now it's just Oklahoma and Virginia. It's a good job. 
I mean, I was shocked to see that Bronco Mendenhall was there for six years. It feel like feels like he just got there two or three years. I ago. felt the same way. Yeah. So, um, kind of weird circumstances with him stepping away, but I mean, it's it's a good job in the ACC. Where does it rank? Um, it's probably middle of the pack. I would say I wouldn't put it towards the top in terms of great jobs in that conference, but it's definitely not at the bottom. So it, it, overall, it's a good job. I think you got to find the right uh, cultural fit there. It is a very good academic school. It, it's it's maybe the best public school in America in terms of academics. So you got to play with that factor of it. So, yeah, I mean, I you, you know who I think about for that job, that would be great, but it's kind of a lateral move, is Dave Clawson. Dave Clawson leaving Wake Forest for Virginia. That would be a home run slam dunk. I know he just signed a contract. It's pretty with Wake Forest, But that guy makes perfect sense. He did really well, won a national title at Richmond, uh, a level below that also. I think he'd make a lot of sense at, at a place like Virginia. That's the type of coach I think about. So hotness. Is it bad that I think of, I think of the Kentucky job and compare it to Virginia, like on expectation level, on like uh, ceiling uh, there's no reason to 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 say that Virginia could not be like a uh, a Wake Forest or a North Carolina in football. Like I think what it Matt should Jones, be. Yeah. Matt, what Matt Brown has done um, at, at North Carolina, where they have high expectations based on their quarterback play, like that that to me gives some hope to Cavalier fans. And they're going to measure whoever comes in against uh, who is it Pry, who got the Hokies job. That's yeah. their arch rival, obviously. So. Uh, Two guys coming in at the same time in, into a big rivalry. Hutton, Paul, I'll, uh, come, I'll come Monday with my top ten for Virginia. Might, might <laughs> that'd be great. Like I'll make a top. I got a couple friends that are Virginia guys who who would love to know that. So we've talked a little bit, and Hutton has made a uh, a great game for us. Who makes more than Eli Drinkwitz or less? Right? Uh, yeah. And so uh, Kevin Clark at the Ringer, who's excellent, had had a great piece up. And I had forgotten this as we were talking about the small salaries of NFL coaches in comparison to some of these college football salaries for people of that ilk, never mind these gigantic people, or, or Mel Tucker in, so early in his career getting what he got. A couple years ago, uh, Matt Rule, not too far removed from being a college, or straight out of college, got six years – and uh, sorry, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I can't remember what he got. It was a, a, a outrageous. Oh, it was. It was an out, six years, sixty million dollars, something like that. Yeah. A, an outrageous deal by NFL terms, and NFL owners were pissed about it. It wasn't like, hey, everybody get on board. We gotta go do what Carolina did. It was, who the hell are these guys? Who's Dave Tepper to be paying like this? It's making us all look bad. And Kevin Clark wrote. College boosters like throwing money around to show how important they are. And NFL owners hate throwing money around so they can show how important they are. Kind of the contrast. I'm not, I'm not going to spend any money. I'm too important to spend money. As opposed to the boosters who are like, I'm going to show you how influential I am by spending money. And that being the contrast, I thought that was a pretty interesting way of looking at it. Well, they're, they're also, you know, the NFL owners are also giving part of their revenue to the players. And to the GM. And that's not the case. That's not the case for the boosters. Well, well, yes, it is. But you, you know what I mean, right? Um, and in some cases, Paul, you've got assistant coaches and coordinators in college football that make NFL head coaching salaries. That's crazy, you know. And 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 so they're not; these boosters aren't contributing to just one massive salary. 
coordinators in the SEC are getting paid millions. So seven years, we could do a a gig on coordinators making more than Mike Vrabel. Seven years, 60 million for rule. And I I do remember people were kind of up in arms about it behind, behind the scenes. Hutton, you brought up the possibility of Ryan day to the bears. Yeah. My immediate thought was that was, well, the bears are serious about paying their head coach a lot of money because to lure a college coach Mm -hmm. to the NFL, a big time college coach, not a mid-level coach, it's going to cost you more than, elevating an assistant at the NFL level that wants to be a head coach. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an expensive and risky proposition for NFL owners to go hire a college coach because you know, it's going to cost you money. And obviously there's not a track record typically with these college coaches at the professional level. And are they going to buy you you also, are they going to buy you, are they going to buy you a $6 million house? Like, uh, like Lincoln Riley just got, and you're going to have unlimited use of a private charter. I mean, that's, that's unheard of. That's like succession or billions. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's a completely different world uh, in, in recruiting coaches in college football and getting them to hop around because they don't have a non-compete. And because of that, you pay a premium price. Um, it, it's not the case in the NFL, of course. But, you know, w- with Ryan Day to the, the Bears, I, I'm, I'm, I'm also putting a premium on his, his relationship with Justin Fields. Like, that, that's why you would pay him the money not necessarily because you think he's the best possible solution uh, as, a, as a, a coaching brain that you're bringing into your organization. You're pairing him with the quarterback that you already said is the franchise. So that, that to me, is, is the true value in, in what you're trying to do because Matt Nagy's not getting it done with the rookie. And Justin Fields not starting, doubtful, and Andy Dalton's got yeah. to start on Sunday because of an injury. Yeah, and then and, and day uh, not day uh, Nagy uh, in the preseason was adamant that Dalton was going to be their guy. So I mean, it, it turns out to, to me be the writing's on somewhat, the wall there. It turns out to be somewhat correct because they're getting Fields beat up. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't been good, um, but it, it just it seems like a weird pairing because they were so you know they were they traded up to get him and then didn't force the issue, and especially when they started losing the way they did, you thought. Okay, maybe the Bears will once they insert fields. I th- I said on the show he won't leave the field, and and now we've seen it a couple times. I've you got- know what I'd like to see the the sort of the next uh, evolution of college to NFL. You know, we see this influence of what happens in college eventually trickles up to the yeah. NFL, and you start seeing some of that with quarterback play, with offenses, defensive philosophy, everything else. Instead of hiring Matt Rule to be the NFL coach. Um, it's sort of the Joe Brady attack, but skipping that and going straight to head coach. If, for instance, just just an example I'm going to throw out there. If you draft Matt Corral, okay, and a year from now, Matt Corral shows his rookie year that he's your franchise. He's going to be your franchise uh, quarterback. You know the cheaper route than hiring Lane Kiffin to come run your NFL team who's already failed once as an NFL coach? Go hire Jeff Levy, the offensive coordinator at Ole Miss. Why not go hire one of these young offensive coordinators that have been multiple places, that have adapted offenses at multiple places, and are quarterback groomers, that are guys that can get the most out of the quarterback? That's the the outside-the-box thinking I want to see from an owner at some point. Shock everyone and go get the coordinator in their 30s at the college level that's paired with the quarterback. If he's got enough team. experience, Brady Brady wasn't at a high enough level long enough. I mean, he he was uh, – how long was he at LSU? Two years? And before that, 
was he even a position coach with the Saints? He wasn't a coordinator. I, I, he was pretty low ranking. He was the I think he was the quarterbacks coach. Yeah. with the Saints before getting to New Orleans. Yeah, no, I mean quarterbacks coaches have gotten head coaches jobs, but he's really young. I mean Brady to get a head coaching job in the NFL right now would be a really raw, yeah. inexperienced guy. And I'm saying that in the context of of McVay and LaFleur and Kingsbury. I still think he's probably too inexperienced. But, I mean, a coordinator you're talking about with more experience who's latched on to a guy, you know, in, in light of kind of Hutton's Ryan Day with Justin Fields thing, that's true. But still, Hutton, the thing about him latching on to Fields doesn't make up the money that the Bears are going to come up short of what Ohio State could offer. Well, right. And that that I was going to add, it, it may not be able to make sense for, for Ryan Day because Chicago can't beat out Ohio State with their money. They're, all, they're almost in, a, in the worst possible offseason right now to go get their coach that, that coached their quarterback because, you know, if it were last year or the year prior – College programs were not spending money uh, to this level. Some, uh, Chad, you mentioned um, the top, the winningest programs uh, yeah. over the history of college football or over the last 25, 30 years. Like seven or eight of those jobs in the top 25 are, were open or are open right now. So Day's going to get a raise at Ohio State, and that may keep him from actually getting a job or an offer from Chicago – because unlike Matt Rule, who was at Baylor and in a in a scenario where the Panthers could go and give him that bump in pay that would make him upwards of one of the highest paid college coaches per season, they did it and just hired him to the NFL. I don't think they could do that for Ryan Day right now. Be hard. Yeah, I, I don't see. I, I don't see a route. Uh, I'm with you, Hutton. That if, if it's about money. Ryan Day will stay in college football. I mean, that's there's it's just a no-brainer if it's all about money. Now, if it's about, you know, a lifestyle decision or I, I want to test my medal at the top level in the NFL, yeah. and some guys are just built that way, they want to see if they can do it at the next level also, which is completely understandable for competitive people, then you you make the jump. But if we're if the baseline for everything is how much money can I make, well, you're in the profession to make as much money as you want. As, as Paul said. You know, you're a you're an oil baron right now if you're a major college football coaching star with what you can make and what you can demand from these schools and these boosters that it's it's a it's a lifetime ATM card for whatever you want based on the different industries represented by the boosters of the school. They give you whatever you want when you're a top level college football coach. It's not necessarily the same with the NFL. So there has to be something else driving you outside of making the most possible money if you want to make that jump from college to pro. And Paul, the, the other thing with that is Chicago, if Nagy's out, they're likely cleaning house. Yeah. And Pace so, is gone. right. So you probably hire the GM first and then, then the head coach, at least that's in theory, how it normally works. Um, that's how it worked here or in Nashville. So, um, or it worked here in, in Atlanta where I sit today uh, with the Falcons. As an old friend of ours would have said, I, uh, I'm going to give these two guys uh, a long segment off, upgrade the looks around here, yeah. and visit with Bobby Carpenter. We'll find out what he thinks of Brian Kelly's accent. This is Outkick 360 on the Outkick Network.
Welcome back. Outkick 360 on a Friday eve of the SEC championship game from 6th and Peabody in downtown Nashville. Pleased to be joined by Bobby Carpenter of Outkick. Bobby, it's just like we've planned it for a long time. It's taken taken a while, but I've gotten rid of Hutton and Withrow. And here we are, getting down to business. How you doing, pal? I'm doing well. I'm I wasn't sure whether or not like they had left you or this oh, was a no, situation no, no, no. where okay, you're, well, where you're am in charge I? now. I mean well, this is the studio and they're not here. So I mean I mean they the might have left now. me, but I'm the captain of the ship. Did I you, like it. you did you enjoy Brian Kelly's accent as much as everybody else? And do you buy him now as a true oh, native Cajun? <laughs> a native Cajun. The fact that you would throw that out there is is almost utterly ridiculous. The guy is from the northeast New oh, England no. area. Don't be fooled. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's about as good as uh my goodness. I mean, Kurt Russell's got a pretty nice accent and like, you know, unmerical. I mean, there, there's some great actors that can do some like Kevin Costner's British accent in Robin Hood. Like that, that's atrocious. That's where I'd kind of put um you know, Brian Kelly's. And I, I don't think it was honestly as bad as, as what people were making it out to be. It was just so unexpected. It's not like he's somebody who nobody knows. Like, I don't think that there was someone who was more associated, you know, and right for the job with Notre Dame. He's a Northeast guy, Catholic dude. You know, he just see Kelly, he just seemed like he fit that mold. And then you come down there and you try to be like Captain Slick and sit there and talk, you know, trying to talk with a, a, a a Southern accent, like Louisiana accent. I, and I don't know if he ran that by his wife or, or who he practiced, you know, as he's sitting there flying on the private jet down there and you're just staring at a mirror, looking at it and doing this accent thing. Yeah. Like, this is the way to go. This is how I'm going to get people, you know, on my side. And then, you know, he also drops in there. Like I haven't even won all my games yet. Like, dude, it's, it's, it's kind of a team. Like we, I haven't even won all these games for us. We haven't won all these games, like be inclusive as a head coach, you know, try to bring everybody together. That's what people you know want to see. That's what they want to hear. And I, I'm telling you this, if I tried to do that, cause I've, I've thrown out some things you know, with this, and you know, I was on the, you know, on the show uh, with the guys down in uh, um, down in Knoxville. And I joked I mean, I grew up in Southeastern Ohio. My wife's from Portsmouth right across to the Kentucky river. I was born in Houston. We moved around a lot, but I have a lot of friends. I, I can slide into a nice Appalachian Kentucky, Tennessee accent. If I really need to, and I joked about doing the whole show like that, but like, who am I fooling? Like, that's, that's not how I talk normally or consistently. So why do it? Like my wife would have shot. She shot that idea down right there. I just can't believe that Brian Kelly didn't have someone in his life that would have said, Hey, this probably isn't the best idea. We don't need to do it. That's not why they hired you. They hired you to win football games for them and to hopefully put together a staff here soon. So let's just focus on doing that. I, I tried for years to to uh, stay in an, a British accent for the for the beginning of our old radio show, and it never lasted more than a minute. It was more Australian than British, and it was universally horrible. I was self aware enough to know that, though, so I, I had that going for me. We know what chalk will look like this weekend. We know what the college football playoff will look like if we get chalk. That Georgia will stay one. That Michigan would likely be two, and then we'd get some combination of Cincinnati and Oklahoma State, right? What's the most likely? You, you think that would be the case? I think that 
is the most likely scenario now. Now let's not hold on, hold on to this though. You know, it, just because chalk, you know, and teams win, I think there will be some difference in the seating, regards of how these games look. You know, if Michigan wins a close one, do they slide back at all? I, I don't know. You know, if, if Iowa it you know, takes it to them, if let's say Bama and Georgia lose a close one, you know, if Bama loses three point game. I mean, do they ultimately stay? And I think that there is still. You know, that that thought that that could happen, given that they're three and you know, if they play Georgia tougher than anyone else has played them all year, do they stay in even being a two loss team? Well, that's where I'm headed. I, I wanted to ask you, what's the most likely thing that makes it not those four that makes it not Georgia, Michigan, Cincinnati and Oklahoma State? Not necessarily in that order. I think, honestly, Baylor's got a pretty good chance to beat Oak State to be real with you. And, and if that's the case, does Baylor get in or do you ultimately slide Notre Dame in who you know, we heard Gary Barta talk about, and we're going to take into account who the head coach is. Now I always understood the college football playoff selection committee, taking in injuries and things that have happened like that on the field stuff. I, I don't, I would have been very upset if, you know, just because Notre Dame, their coach left them. If you're going to hold that against the players and the remainder of the staff, and I, that, that's not just for Notre Dame. That would be my universal thought and feeling because those players and coaches, they, they didn't do anything. They're just trying to play for you know, a national championship and their coach jettisoned on them and then woke up some, you know, average at best Louisiana accent, you know, on, on his uh, plane ride down uh, to the boot. So, you know, I would have been upset with that. But I do think that there is a good chance that Baylor can upset Oak State. I mean, Baylor's a really good team. They've continued to get better throughout the season. You know, there's some confidence brewing there with Dave Aranda. I don't necessarily think it happens, but I do think that that is the one fly in the ointment when you look at all of these games. Yeah, could Houston beat Cincinnati? Yeah, that could possibly happen. Could Iowa beat Michigan? Yeah, if they get a lead and things start going that way, that could happen as well. And heck, Bama, maybe they could even beat Georgia or play close enough. But I think the most likely fly in the ointment for the committee would ultimately be Oak State losing to Baylor. Because in that case, then you would have, hey, how did that Bama game look you know, against Georgia? Do you slide up Notre Dame? And then you have some real jockeying, I think, that's going to take place. So who would be your choice then between Baylor and Notre Dame? And I, I'm with you on not holding Kelly leaving against Notre Dame. My thing is I have trouble watching a team move up while it's sitting home watching everybody else play. And I think that's part of the, the, the punishment, if you will, for being independent. It is, and it's uh, you're 100 right in that, and that's why I, you know I've, I've always not been a huge fan of a team of like you don't even win your division, you're not playing in your conference championship game, ultimately getting in. I mean, even if you're the best team in your conference and it just worked out with some tiebreakers and you lost the wrong game on the wrong day, you know everybody else has to play that extra game. Um, I would pro I would have to see how that game looked. If Baylor, you know, routes. If they route Oak State, then I think that Baylor probably, even as a two-loss team, should get in as a conference champ. Now, if it's a close win, you know, I think you probably could slide Notre Dame in there. They would have the best loss of anybody um, sitting up there in the top four. So you'd have to look at that, losing to a team that'd be just above them in Cincinnati. I, I, I just, outside of Georgia, I think who is the best. I think if Michigan wins, they're deserving, you know, and they're right up there. I think Cincinnati, if they win, they definitely should be able to get their crack at it. But as far as a, the the rest of the teams there, there, there's a lot of flawed candidates. And that's what I'm sitting here trying to figure out is I'm going to have to watch these games. And it's not fair for the teams that aren't playing. They don't get that extra data point. 
to either improve or potentially look worse. And so you, I always kind of err on the side of teams that are playing, but you've got to figure this thing out. And I think this is the first year in quite some time where we've kind of had to take every single week to understand exactly what we have here in college football. Bobby Carpenter of Outkick with us, our guest. You can read him at outkick.com. Um, read what you wrote about Michigan, Iowa, and um, like like the idea that 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 they're similar approaches. Um, it seem it seems like similar teams, but that Michigan is a superior version of the similar team, and certainly with more weapons than Iowa. Iowa turns it into a defensive game, and maybe is in it early. The longer they can stay that way, the more of a chance they have. It's ten and a half point spread, but you're talking like you wouldn't be surprised. I I, I think the. I would probably take the points in this one. This game to me looks at like, you know, maybe a 21-13 game, you know, maybe a late cover by Iowa. I don't think Michigan will probably really feel threatened most of the game. Now, with that all being said, you know, Iowa, if you look at how they won games early in the season, they're able to turn teams over, stop the run, get short fields, and their offense isn't great. That's the thing. They have a much narrower path to victory given how they play football. They can't sit there and outscore people. If the over hits, Michigan's probably won this thing by 14 points or more. But if it's in the under, and Iowa can make this thing ugly, they can junk it up, they can get an early lead, control tempo, slow down Michigan's rushing attack. They push more on Cade McNamara, who's played really well. He's done a great job. I think he's grown tremendously at the quarterback position for Michigan this season. You know, he's really made some big plays. They've stepped up. And he's done a good job taking advantage of his running game and utilizing play action. But if he can't do that, and it's a little bit similar to Georgia, no one's been able to do it on him. But if you can ultimately get a lead on them and force them to play from behind, how do they respond? I mean, Michigan's done it a little bit this year, but never really a lot. You know, Iowa, when they've had success, that's what they've been able to do. Get that lead. Let that defensive line take over. They're going to rush the football on you, slow the game down immensely, frustrate you, and then – Try to win that thing by a field goal. Like that would be three to four points. That would be Iowa's method of victory. I don't think it happens. I do think that they probably cover just because it gets a little ugly and it's it's not a pretty game by today's standards. If you like old school football, this is probably more a game for you. Uh, but I, I do think that Iowa keeps it close enough. Just Michigan has too much firepower in the end. Two questions about SEC fear, fear of the SEC. One about a 12-team playoff. So it it seems like there's some reluctance because other other conferences feel like well SEC's growing by two teams and this field if we don't put restraints on what it will look like could be overloaded with SEC teams and 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 we don't want that. But if you look at what it would be right now, you'd have Georgia, Bama and Old Miss right? You'd have Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan State. That'd be pretty equitable distribution. Maybe there'd be a year here and there where the SEC had heavy distribution. Maybe there'd be a year here or there where the Big Ten had heavy distribution. Should this be a fear? And do you think it's at play? I do think that there is a little bit of a fear of it, especially with Oklahoma and Texas coming in. You know, from what I've heard, the big hangup is, um, I think you know, whatever the alliance, whatever this is, the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12, they want to have their conference champs regardless 
of what their ranking is get in. And so there's an element of playing for your conference title. It doesn't matter whether you backdoor it in there and you're eight and three or nine and three or whatever it is. If you win, you get in. And, and you know, the, the meritocracy part of me does enjoy that uh, to a certain degree where we're settling it on the field and it's not some people just sitting in a room and arbitrarily deciding. And, and it's not that, you know, the SEC and maybe some of the other conferences are opposed to every school, every, uh, you know, group of five or power five uh, uh, program getting uh, or a program in every conference, rather. It's more the fact that like, we'll just take the highest ranked one. And so then, you know, could you lose and you're still the highest ranked team, you know, and you, and you still get in. I, I don't know if I like that. I do kind of enjoy the fact that if you're a conference champ and we can just say across the board, every conference is getting a team in anyway, then maybe it should be the conference champ. I don't know if I'd want to see any more than maybe four or five teams. I'd have to look at the breakdown of how that would work. Uh, you know, no matter how big your conference is, you start getting past four or five, regardless of how quality some of the schools are. It's like you're getting teams that are middle of the pack of your conference. And, you know, I know the SEC is very talented. They got a lot of teams in there. Some years they may have three teams that could get in. Maybe some years it's more five. I don't know. Um, but you do want to see some type of representation everywhere. Um, and to make sure that the games that you're actually playing and winning matter. And so th- I think that there'll be an incentive then to still have those big um, non-conference games that everybody wants to see to be able to get the, I think everybody's universally agreeing on, hey, home fi- home field playoff sites, which I love. I think that that's great for everyone yeah, it'd be awesome. and get it in there. I mean, uh, and that's what people, regardless of like region, I mean, what school wouldn't want to have a home playoff game? Like what, re- <laughs> I don't care if it's like, People in the north, like, hey, want to see SEC type teams come up? That's great, fine. But I guarantee you, people in Alabama and Georgia and Tennessee and Florida, hey, we'd love to host a home playoff game too. Like, that's going to be tremendous. So I, I think they've agreed on a lot. I think that that conference championship thing is a little bit of the sticking point, and that may be, you know, hopefully they're able to get that overcome because I, I want to see this thing happen sooner rather than later. Because really, this year I think would have been the ideal year to have it. I don't know about teams you know, 11 and 12 or 10, 11 and 12. But I do think, you know, Georgia's probably the best, but I don't know if they could make it through a gauntlet, you know, with with the style of play that they have, that they'd be able to win it. And you know, if they had to win maybe three games in a row or potentially four or however this thing shakes out, um, because there is a, a, it has flattened a lot more this year, you know, with college football and then having the super seniors and everything else, which ultimately I think has been good for the game and people have really enjoyed it. SEC fear question number two. Lincoln Riley went to, to USC in part to, to not have to navigate the SEC. Now, listen, I'm taking a job. If you're, if you're letting me live at the beach and giving me free use of the jet, I'm going. And I don't care if you tell me I'm scared of the SEC, but there's a lot of that talk going on here. You know, people, some people love California. I like to visit California. I like to go to Napa. You know, I, I wouldn't mind living there, you know, briefly, but I, I'm not a guy that would love LA. I think the weather would be nice. I don't enjoy paying high taxes. I don't enjoy brownouts. I don't enjoy wildfires. I don't enjoy bums everywhere. I don't enjoy earthquakes. So there's a lot of negatives that I'm going to look at that you do have to encounter than just the high quality stuff that you're living each and every day. That said, Lincoln Riley wanted to go there. They paid him a boatload. I think or, or Oklahoma was going to pay him a lot. LSU. Before Brian Kelly, I think a lot of people have now come to the realization that the BK thing moved quickly because most people in LSU thought it was going to be Lincoln Riley, and he ultimately goes to USC. I do believe this. Sitting here today, whatever it is, December 3rd, 
you know, I think in talking to some people out at Oklahoma that there was a real fear of him not wanting to go and compete, you know, in the SEC. You know, maybe that's just at Oklahoma, but he obviously didn't want to take the LSU job, you know, either. I don't know if USC paid him significantly more or not, but I can't imagine that there was you know, that stark of a difference. But I do feel that that played into it, and it did not play into it in the positive column for Lincoln Riley. What's the route for Alabama to, to pull off an upset of Georgia? Does it start with the offensive line having to play its best game of the season and give Bryce Young time and opportunity? I think, and this, you know, this is the old cliche, but you know, you got to start fast. I do think the offensive line is going to have to play well. Bryce Young's talented, but you have to give him time. You look at the games that where he struggled, they've had issues. It's been with you know big physical fronts, guys bringing pressure all over the place. And, you know, they, they've typically gotten that figured out a little bit more, but you know, they struggled against Auburn for four quarters. If it wasn't for a great final drive, you know, and maybe some ill-advised calls, I think, by Auburn at the end. I mean, you, you've got yourself a pretty good setup. You know, you look at the same thing with A&M. They were to get pressure on them. They're gonna, they would have to get big plays early. I think that's the methodology. You can block it up. You would have to have Jamison Williams get some big wins early, get some hits. And if you could get a 10-3 to lead, a 14-3 to lead, then I think Nick Saban's smart enough. We can navigate this thing offensively. We can figure out a path to play keep away a little bit. We'll frustrate them and force them to start throwing the football because that's the one thing we really haven't seen Georgia have to do. They've got a decimated wide receiver room. Now, I know they're, they're maybe getting some guys back a little bit this week, which should help bolster it, but they've just kind of lived on running the football. You know, Stetson Bennett can use his legs a little bit, buy some time. They can throw some play-action stuff but they've never had to push the game really back onto his shoulders. And that's a testament to how good Georgia is that he's never had to do that. Maybe against Alabama, if they can get that quick early lead, maybe there's the possibility of getting that done. Which you don't sound like you are expecting. I, I think it can happen. There's just a lot of ifs. And I've watched Georgia, and I, I wouldn't say I've waited for their demise, but I've waited for someone to be able to get a, couple of, to get a quick score or two on them. To be able to take them in, you know, Kentucky did it a little bit. You know, Tennessee had some, you know, intermittent success here and there. I mean, there, there were some teams that did some some small things to them, but eventually you just succumb to that defensive front and how good they are, and they slowly just bludgeon you to death with the offensive line. And so it's not that I don't think that it can happen. I think that it can. I just start looking, you know, at the if statements. The more ifs we have to make, it's like the more fifths you have to drink, and and that's going to end up bad for everybody at the end of the night. Bobby Carpenter of OutKick, great college football expert. We appreciate you every week, and uh, maybe we could accommodate this. Just me and you every week, we'll kick those guys out. Oh, I'm, I'm down for that. I mean, you've been you've been pulling Hutton along for way too long. <laughs> I mean, this dude's not hardly bringing anything to the show anymore. I, I love when you take the bait. Thanks, man. Good to see you. My pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, what are the 46 things that have to happen for the Detroit Lions to make the playoffs? This is OutKick. 360 on the Outkick Network. Glad, so glad you're with us on Outkick 360. Paul Kuharski here in Nashville at 6th and Peabody. Yeehaw beer, Old Smoky Moonshine, as good as it gets. In Atlanta, Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow rejoining me after our great segment with Bobby Carpenter. Boys, good to see you again. How's it going down there? What's up? What's up, Polly? 
Chad, Chad, it'd be nice if I muted myself first. But uh, Paul, you did excellent work there with Bobby Carpenter. Uh, I'm from, glad you from glad you I stuck around. Great job, boys. NFL on CBS tweeted out last night that there is still a path for the winless Detroit Lions <laughs> to the to the playoffs. They have six games remaining. That means they are what? Oh, 10 and one. One. Zero wins, ten losses, and a tie. There's a path for them. uh, Jacob Swanson's going to put it up on the screen here. If all of these (laughs) things happen, these are 46 different results, including six Lion wins that get into the playoffs. Now, you guys know I love this New York Times playoff machine. I, last night, sitting in front of this game that I hated with Taysom Hill at quarterback, went through the New York Times playoff machine, which, by the way, is really just a simulation, right? It runs every you know, every scenario 10,000 times or whatever. I put, and right now it has Detroit with a 0% chance of making the playoffs. So it's effectively inaccurate because it it hasn't considered this scenario. I put in every one of these 46 results and in so doing, it comes up 100% that they are in the playoffs. So uh, looking at this, put a graphic, Paul, um, it's a, it's, only one game does the Tennessee Titans factor into their playoff scenario, and that's in week 16 against San Francisco. The Titans would need to beat San Francisco of all of these results that have to happen. I don't see the Titans anywhere else on this scenario. No, I think you're right. The Cowboys, uh, I didn't count or anything, but as I was putting these into the uh, New York Times playoff machine, it struck me that I kept having to look for the Cowboys. I was flipping between two screens, so I was doing like, okay, uh, looking at week 16, Titans, Giants, Buccaneers, Rams. And then I would flip to the other screen, and I would look for Titans, Giants, Buccaneers, Rams, and click off those four and then go back. And I found this an entertaining project. That tells you how bad the Saints were last night, that I found this entertaining. But I'm sure... It gets them in the, the, the tie against Pittsburgh, keeps them alive. Yeah, that, so it's six and a half wins gets them in the playoffs in this scenario. That's what it amounts to. I yeah. mean, guys, what what are we doing here? What what are we what it's, are we really it's, doing? It's here? just what, fun what are we to really think that there's about? actually a possibility. It's, it's we know it's fun, not happening. It it's a great visual as I look at this. Uh, as I talk about the possibilities the Lions make the playoffs, though, it's just completely absurd. <laughs> uh, it it is amazing from a mathematical standpoint, I guess, that they're not mathematically eliminated at this point, but we I think mean, Dan hey, Campbell's selling that this week. Do you think Dan Campbell's oh, selling Dan, Dan that? Campbell, Dan Campbell today in a team meeting, Showed put that. that on the big screen and then he wept like that. That's what Dan Campbell did. <laughs> and Dan he, wept. Bit, bit a kneecap. <laughs> yeah. And Dan wept. And then Dan wept is the end of every story <laughs> with the Detroit lions. It's every, it's the end of every Sunday. Yeah. For Lions fans, might as well be the end of everything for Dan Campbell also to end with weeping. So, Hutton, you talk about these rabbit holes you find yourself in on uh, on the internet a lot, particularly on YouTube, you stuff, yeah. that, stuff that you find yourself watching and then the it takes hole. you down. Wormhole, that's it. Um, so I found myself in one last night, and I, I found myself in several lately with, um, with Twitter people who do these threads that are unbelievable. They're... I, I think they waste them, quite frankly, as a Twitter thing. They should start up a blog or something. They're really good. So this guy, um, tr- tr- sorry, Trung Fan, 
uh, who's Canadian. He had uh, he he found on Reddit. There's a a, a big dis- I guess some some discussions on Reddit are legit, right? They're not all angry sports fans who want to kill each other. Um, he found oh, these- Reddit. Reddit has solved like mysteries. They yeah, solved right. murders. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of things. It's just that not the areas we go. The you most. can find a Reddit thread that figures out every television show that people try to figure out. I mean, there's a lot of people that can sleuth it up on Reddit and, and figure things out. So it's like he- TMZ. When when TMZ reports a death, you can count on it being accurate. So he put out yep. these twelve maps in a thread that I thought were fascinating. And a lot of people were commenting on them. Like if if my geography class had shown maps like this, I would have been way into geography. And so I found one of them that I thought was fascinating that I wanted to share with you. And Jacob, as our resident near Canadian, uh, was also surprised by this. Are you looking at this? So he says 50% of Canada lives under the red line. Do you see the red line here and all of Canada that is above that? So I was you playing hard to find it to the yeah. very, very bottom. So it's it, Toronto. It, it runs from Maine to Minnesota pretty much. And Montreal, Ottawa and Toronto are all just South at least of this red line and the expanse of Canada above that. Less than half of Canada lives above that. I, I could not believe this when I was looking at this. I thought it was one of the, like, I, I thought the same thing. I wish my geography class told me things like that. That's, that's very cool. Canada should now, split what, in half. What the, I wonder what the percentage is if we took away Vancouver from the equation of the, of the rest of the yeah. second half if, of if Canada. If you put a red line around Vancouver, would it be 80%? Yeah. And, and Edmonton. Lives below these uh, And red then lines? take Edmonton and Winnipeg. And then there'd be nothing. No one left. There's yeah. like uh, Jordan Tutu and, and nobody else. <laughs> Right? What it also tells what it also tells me is that Canada, as I've long stated, is a barren wasteland uh, that no one wants to live in because all of the population centers. Look at them. Look, where are they? Yeah. Oh, They're practically weird. They're in the right United next States. To the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. You would love, it's, and that's why Canada wanted to get proximity to the greatest country in the world instead of just making maple syrup all day. Which you they would do in the absolutely rest of the love Toronto or uh, Montreal cities that yeah, I and, was and, to and as a big a part of that, person. Paul, is because. It's very close to the U.S. of A. Very American. That's why I love it. So here's, here's another one that he had on here. And you should follow this guy if you're out there, people. Trung T. Fan. T-R-U-N-G-T-P-H-A-N. The longest possible train-wide ride in the world. 11,000 miles, 275 hours. I did the math. That's over 11 days. Goes from Portugal to Vietnam. It goes like out from Portugal up to like, it looks like Moscow and then straight across Russia all the way around Mongolia and down to Vietnam. My wife said, oh, we should do that. I said, yeah, it'd be interesting to Moscow. And after that, it sounds like utter hell. Like just through is, So is Trung fan just a geography Twitter no, account? He, I, does he no, he does, he does like 12, 12 installment threads of interesting stuff. He had another thing of like 12 busted huge business ideas. The first one was ESPN, the phone. And then it was like inflatable furniture from Ikea. And he's got explanations on all of it. And they're riveting. I I read like 15 of them last night. His bio says smart threads, dumb memes, right on tech for the hustle, sold a comedy film to Fox, not investment advice podcast. Well, we know what Chad's watching. We know what Chad's watching tonight when he gets back to the room. I feel like... uh, (laughs) I, I, guys, that, that train ride, 
I think people say, oh, it would be fun. 11 days. Yeah. And I'm thinking, 11 yeah, 11 hours days, would be fun. 11 days through the Florence uh, countryside of Italy yeah. would be a blast. I'm imagining this train ride being like riding on the roads in Kentucky, uh, where you have to dodge bullets flying at the train uh, for people trying to jump on and rob you. Yeah, like, you're doing I, I the feel entire, like this would be a, a fear factor thing. The entire border of Mongolia. I mean, I think you could go days without seeing people. It doesn't sound like a good. I'll take the first no. half, maybe five days. What well, days without seeing people? You just sold me on it. All right, that, <laughs> we have a gift idea for Reed's David Reed. Live on that train. <laughs> we He's going to do a circle on that train the rest of his life, just we over have and over again. Excellent, excellent gift idea for David Reed. When we come back, we're going to hit some headlines. The Grizzlies won by a huge margin, and the Predators have some ugly jerseys. Outkick three sixty. 